You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre Prue. Well, we've both been traveling, but uh, before we get into your most recent gallivanting in Italy, the uh, Ontario Wine Awards recently took place, and uh, we they both did. have some opinions. Well, I, I went. Um, I was invited to, to judge this year. I was not. Uh, I uh, I had to respectfully decline. Uh, because I was traveling. Well, there we go. Um, I must admit that when the press release crossed my desk, my eyebrows went up a little bit to see uh, Norm Hardy being awarded White Wine of the Year. That's that's an abomination. I I would agree as well. And um, I, I don't know if a lot of people listen to this podcast know. I now have a weekly radio show on 640 Toronto. I used the power of the the global newsroom to ask for a statement from uh, George Brown college. And they basically, I'm, I'm completely paraphrasing here, which is not great journalistic on my side, but we don't want to spend a ton of time on this. They basically said in 2018, George Brown college severed all ties with Norm Hardy, including rescinding an honorary bachelor of uh, a bachelor degree that they'd given him in hospitality, but the wines were tasted blind. So, it's all okay. I don't. I don't think that that admonishes anybody. I don't either. Um, you know what? You you see that and you go move on to the next one if that's what you're going to do. Um, if he entered, you could have blocked him from entering and going. Sorry, we don't want to see your wines in this thing. Um, we we have standards, um, and you do not match those standards. Uh, there there are many ways you can do that. You caught that one. Uh, on the other hand, I caught the other thing. I have never seen a. Um, a release from the Ontario Wine Awards. It was fourteen pages long. Yep. Um, I oh, they're usually was that long. Shocked. They got fourteen pages. That means you've given out way too many awards. There were like eleven medals given out in the sparkling wine category. That's you know what? It's always been uh, gold, silver, bronze. And yep. having been on the panels before, if there were ties. And they couldn't be broken, then yes, I could see giving it, you know, a tie for gold, maybe a tie for silver, or sometimes a tie for bronze. So that's like six, if everybody ties in that way. But there was always a, you know, here are the two wines that tied for gold. Taste them. Which one's gold? Which one's silver? That has always been too many awards. We're getting into that, you know, Finger Lakes Wine Festival kind of uh, um, uh, realm. Uh, it's got to be tightened up. You know, that's what the whole beauty of the Ontario Wine Awards was. One, integrity. Norm Hardy lost his winemaker of the year, uh, the year he won it because of uh, what had happened. He lost his watch or whatever they were giving at that time. And, um, you know, it was three medals, gold, silver, bronze. Uh, I, I really don't know what to say about the Ontario Wine Awards. Now that it's under George Brown, I'm a little disappointed in the whole thing. Well, I have a feeling that neither you or I will be judging that competition anytime soon. Probably not. So, on to lighter things. Um, Speaking of lighter things, uh, in my glass, and I was the one... You brought it. Who I brought this because I was at a Chablis tasting, and uh, I picked up a bottle of wine while I was there. Uh, we had spoken to uh, Louis Moreau yes, at one did. point on the podcast. I thought, great, let's try his 2020 Chablis. I brought that along in the hopes that by bringing a Chardonnay that you would actually listen to me talk about Abruzzo. 
Uh, I appreciate it. Um, this is delicious wine. Um, but this is one of those things where, like, I know uh, in an upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about Burgoyne. Like, that'll be in, in a couple weeks uh, about my recent trip. But I did a lot of tying, and I guess this is uh, behind the, the curtain for people listening to this. We recorded that episode earlier, but this one's coming out first. Got it. Um, but, like, I did a lot of tying Burgoyne back to Ontario in terms of where our winemaking is. And, I mean, spoiler alert. It's all kind of feel good stuff, like patting ourselves on on the back. Yeah, Andre uh, broken arm. <laughs> but this is one of those things where, like, this wine is delicious. Yeah, uh, mineral driven. You know, quite complex for the thirty three dollars that you paid. But I think this is where we're getting to the point. If you want to talk about where Ontario is going, dollar for dollar, pound for pound, ounce for ounce, mill for mill. You know, we're doing pretty good in terms of price price quality to price ratio. You know, you can get some great. Great Chardonnay in Ontario for cheaper than this. Ed Madronic and Flat Rock come to mind. So, like, right in that category, that like twenty to thirty-five. You know, I don't, I don't know if our minerality is is at this level. But yeah, I don't think it's. Obviously. But I, mean, I don't think it's made in in this. Like, I don't think that's the goal of a lot no, of the, the I mean, winemakers in Ontario. You know, the fruit's really good on this, and so yeah. anyway, it's, it's it's really bright. It's really flavorful. So, so it's really interesting to see that Louis Moreau. We, as I've said, we've talked to him before that this. Um, the wine hasn't suffered in any way, shape, or form, nor does it suffer in the retrospect of you having been to Burgundy. Yeah. And, uh, um, we should have Louis back on the podcast sometime. So we could call him a friend of the program. Friend of the podcast. Yeah. So, yes, I ended up in, uh, in Abruzzo. I know you'd been there before. Yes. And, uh, so you were there, I think, last year. I was last year. Um, you came back disappointed, I think. No, yes. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of things that sort of went, like, I think logistically went wrong so that the hosts didn't um, didn't put their best foot forward. Like, we were supposed to go to an Anteprima, and the thing is, like, you've shared pictures of your Anteprima photos from Chianti Classico, where there's just rows of wine that you can go and taste yourself, and we were at a tasting that was ill-equipped to deal with a number of journalists there. So I think well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit that one first. You were supposed to get sommelier service. Yes. You did not. This was a, a room full of the winemakers with behind their tables. Think of it as a trade tasting. Fantastic. And that's Love that. what they did. And you could walk up to each individual table, taste what you want. They, if I'm not mistaken, they were told to bring two wines. The Italians never listened. So there was at least three or four per table. Uh, some people had stuff underneath the table. Some, which freaks me right out, some winemakers just didn't bother to show up. They sent their wines. There was wines at the table. Oh, that's hilarious. And they were just lined up there, and you'd go, is this your wine? And they go, no, no, he just didn't show up. And there was one guy who had, you know, not I'm not equating, and nor should anybody ever equate a heavy bottle with a good wine. Please never do that. But there was a guy who um who would who was there would not well he was not there but his wines were there and he had like the heavy bottles one of them wrapped in tissue paper had sent them but didn't send anybody to pour them so it was really hilarious and in my inevitable fashion i found a corkscrew and opened them myself and uh you know they they were nice wines i was surprised he didn't show up to show them off but I'm I'm sick of the big heavy glass bottles and like I, I tend to equate those with uh, a certain category of Californian wines and me and and 
my friends, we've just started calling them boomer bottles. Like they're, they're bottles targeted towards baby boomers who think that heavy and expensive mean. I'm sorry. I know that we have a wide demographic that listen to this podcast. If you are a baby boomer, please don't take offense to what I'm saying. But let's be real. It's rich a-hole baby boomers who go and drop tons of dough on California wine. Like price be damned. Well, so we were talking earlier uh, before the podcast about um, how much wine you had brought back from Burgundy versus how much I had brought back from uh, uh, from Italy when I was uh, sorry Italy and uh, Loire uh, and Languedoc when I was there and um, you said you had brought six bottles back I mm-hmm. brought six bottles back you had I had said well then you must have paid the overage on your luggage you said I did not I looked at each one of your bottles they were pretty much the same weight I had bottles that were just massive uh, doorstops. So and and we're, if we're talking why. and we're talking about like packaging equating quality like you looked at what I brought back and price doesn't equal quality but Correct. I brought back some wines that you're, are you're, not going to be selling for for low prices at any liquor store anywhere your your bottles your six bottles were probably uh, much more expensive than my six bottles so and this isn't this isn't a, a flex it's more just talking about the idea of creating the full package when you're trying to sell wines is that. You do not need to use heavy bottles Correct. to sell a one hundred or two hundred dollar bottle are, of wine. They, wine bottles do not need to be murder weapons. Once <laughs> once they are done, well, that's what I'm trying to say. So um, you did not, as I said, have a good time in Abruzzo. I had a good time. Okay. Let's make it clear because I would like to go back because there's parts of it that I would like to revisit. Let me go right into the beginning to ask you, like from my experience there, I had a chance to visit Villa Magna. Where I, I met, I met them. It turns out, and he emailed me because you had asked me, yes. blah blah. And uh, look, I did not bring the notes from the mass tasting. I brought uh, notes from our individual tastings. Okay, um, because that was the one thing I wanted you to, to to look for. Because we talk about approachability, and I know like the whole concept of sellerability is something that's occupying a lot of my brain space these days and like i said the the only issue i had with a brutesome with the tasting is that the high quality producers are saying that these are wines that need 20 years before they can be enjoyed so here's the interesting part so i kept that in mind while i was there Mm. you didn't you didn't take up too much space trust me i was Um, your jiminy cricket you were not but i did occasionally have you going i didn't I, I, all these wines are expensive and they need time to age and blah, blah, blah. I would say to you, first of all, my focus going was on Cerasuolo, which okay. is, which is the, the rose of the area. Oh, uh, why was that a focus for you, Michael? Because of my rose report coming out on July the 7th. Um, but so that was, that was my number one focus. My number two focus was I wanted to learn obviously more about the region and three was to find out what the hell you were talking about. So, um, so my voice was in your head. It was kicking around back there. Like, you know, like a, like a fart, you know, it's like (laughs) I'm walking around. Oops. I let one go. And uh, there's Andre. Okay. So, um, I, I don't know if they changed the experience based on feedback that you guys gave or if, you know, um, more people wanted to show off when you were there versus what they were showing here. But 
what I found was there was all so first of all Abruzzo is about you know basically two or three grapes there's Trebbiano mm-hmm. which let's get right out of that out of the way right now it is as boring as Pinot Gris like the, it is just there's very few and far between Trebbianos that I went wow that's great there was a couple uh, there was a Valle Real, which, you know, somebody said, you've got to try this. And I'm like, I do not. And then I did wander over to the table and I said, okay, I'm glad I tried it. Yes. It was a. What just happened? And Andre goes down. Are you all right? So I was trying to close. Are you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I was trying to close the vent that's right behind me because it was blowing cold air up my back, and trying to do it discreetly. And that did not turn out that way. Okay, so Treviano, boring, boring, boring. Grape. So we got two other grapes to talk about. Okay. So you got Pecorino, which is the other white grape. What a fascinating grape this oh, is! Oh man. Uh, Anya and I, right before you went to Abruzzo, opened up um, from Tiberio, from Christiana Tiberio, her Pecorino, and it was like mineral nectarine juice, but like so luscious and complex and just like... Pecorino made well is something to behold. And... um, there was there were there will be two uh, videos on my YouTube channel uh, of Pecorino from the area. Uh, one was like total pineapple, and the other one was just total minerality. And and they just it just did you mix them together? Uh, it sounds like it would be a good idea. But I mean, Pecorino can be made really, really, really well. Obviously, the 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 red wine is. Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. Yes. And that's that's the one we're going to focus on Please. mainly. Because it, it makes the red wine and it makes the Cerasuolo. So let's go... Can you say that last word again? Cerasuolo. Okay, thank you. So I, I, I got a, in a whole lot of trouble because I kept carrying Cerasuolo or something like that. And everybody's like, no, it's Cerasuolo. But so, you, you have to do like the, the frog thing that you're doing? Suolo. Yeah, you have to bring it right down. Suolo. So... What I'm saying about this is, I don't know what they were trying to force on you last time, but like it seems like every producer has a Montepulciano de Bruzzo that is oaked, and then they have a Montepulciano de Bruzzo that's unoaked. Okay. And I don't know if you got to try the unoaked, or if they just didn't want to show you the unoaked versions, because those can be, those, let's be honest, a lot of them are the ones that the LCBO are picking up for the seven, the eight, the nine, the twelve, the fourteen dollar wines. Mm-hmm. They're easy drinking. They are quaffable. They are throw them in the fridge for half an hour. See, but those are I, I've enjoyed those, and and you and I have had a chance to taste some of those, like for our Toronto Life tasting. Correct. Um, we had a chance to taste. Uh, shoot, who's the producer? Tor, uh, Tori Zambra. Yeah. Uh, also, just Montepulciano de Bruto and rep- represented by Marchand de Amarique. Uh Like, really just, great just wine. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Edi Di Marzo and, and, you know, those guys. They were wonderful, easy drinking wines. They do have the, you know, in oak for, for a long period of time. I, I even tried one that was made in the Apasamento method. 
I do not think the world is looking for 17% alcohol, uh, Montepulciano de Bruzzo. From a grape that's already crazy high in acid and crazy high in tannin. Yeah, so that's not what you're looking for. But, you know, kudos to them for giving it a shot. I hope you don't do it again. But I'm sure they will because that's just what they want to do. But I found there was an interesting balance. Um, in some of these ones that that were in oak, uh, and 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 it gave the 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 wine a, a little more depth. Uh, so, and what I, type of oak? Well, it's it, now again, just like I have been learning through uh, my trips to Italy, larger barrels are de rigueur these days. Everywhere, man. Like, nobody wants to be over-oaking. The parkerization of wine is, I think, for the most part, over. Over for everyone, but Jimmy Suckling. So, I am finding that, you know, foudre and large barrels and, and the use of new oak is, you know, down to, you know, if 50%, if not less, um, and, and and that's, and really is, really is a a good thing i think for wine because wine grapes are a fruit and they should have that fruit flavor to them and it was interesting i had just finished a, a an article for one of the magazines that i write for muskoka life that um that went into well chablis not obviously Montepulciano, but went into the idea that you know oak is now becoming something that is a seasoning, not the main show. I actually used that analogy with a winemaker in Bourgogne, and it felt like I had blown his mind, because this is how I described the use of, of oak. And like especially with my love of Chardonnay, I firmly believe this. My wife, Anya, is a pastry chef, and she makes really great pies, among other things. And I like to think about oak in wine like cinnamon and apple pies if you have an apple pie with no cinnamon it'll be pretty boring and, yeah. and one note and if you put too much cinnamon in said pie it'll also just not be great it's about finding balance yes and i think that's where um italy yeah and i'm assuming from your time in burgundy you found that as well uh, from my time in the Languedoc, from my time in the Loire, it's interesting to see how oak is being downplayed versus how it used to be like the top thing. Well, we put this in new oak for 24 months. That is not something that is said, one, very often anymore, and two, is proudly said. Yep. Um, so... I, I did. I did find the 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 multiple Chano de Bruzzos that I tasted, uh, for the most part, even those ones in oak, they had a balance to them. Um, now I don't know uh, if if you got much into uh, climate change when you were in Burgundy. I don't think we even talked about that. But this year in Abruzzo is brutal. Uh, they have already received their an- their annual rainfall by March, uh, and they were continuing. So, in northern Italy, in Emilia Romagna, 
our hearts should go out to them because, you know, Fienza was like totally lost. Um, uh, was, was, Fienza is like a totally lost city now. Yep. Um, I don't know if you saw any of the pictures from Northern Italy. And then, you know, to just add insult to injury, two weeks later they had a tornado go through. So these are things that the Italians are not totally ready for. Yeah. Uh, this much rain um, and, and Abruzzo, there is some. Now, the fruit hasn't completely set. So you know, there, was a, there was a debate that went around about, you know, don't you want a lot of or enough rain, enough moisture in the spring so yeah. that it gets you through, you know, those dry July and August so some were complaining that they they said they're going to have to spray early. Some were saying they were getting too much rain. Some were saying they were they were perfect. They're they're not worried at all. It, I, it it became a point of the individual producer. But I mean, the same thing happens in every wine region. That like some people are happy, some people aren't. Like it's it's never a one size fits all with what's happening with the climate. But I mean, I mean, your your conversation about climate change affecting all wine regions, I think, is. The, the the bigger takeaway of what we're talking about right now. Correct. And then and then as as one of the, the guys in I think it was Long Docker Loire said, he goes, I'm a winemaker. I'm never happy. And I yeah. think that probably is is true unless it's like twenty twenty in Ontario where they're you know, everybody was very happy. But I mean that. let's face it, that even that then like happens. that's the one vintage in like twenty years, because even in twenty sixteen our Riesling growers were not happy. Correct. So yeah, as a winemaker, I guess you're you're never happy until you get to the end of the season. Then you can you know go back and look. But they were having a lot of rain, so and and it probably you know I was there for five days. Uh, it rained like and not just rain, not just not just little rain, not not just spitting, but it actually had torrential downpours at least three times a day, which was really and it would last like half an hour, then it would stop. It would get sunny. Obviously, all that moisture would get into the atmosphere, and we were all sweating like pigs again. Um, you know, and, and, but then you know it would become beautiful for a number of hours, and then the black clouds would come in over the mountains. And what a beautiful, what a beautiful area! Like you've been there, like yeah. those mountains just. The see, see this, this this is why this is why like I hesitate to like blanket say that like I was disappointed there because Abruzzo is high on my list of places to revisit because it has amazing touristic infrastructure it's got a lot of history but it doesn't have the crowds like you land in rome when you go to abruzzo yes and you have to take and, a train or a bus or something and, like and rome is a beautiful city but like it's also like it's shoulder to shoulder tourists like the city is basically a giant museum you go to abruzzo you get to experience you get to experience italy without the crowds and in an authentic way and in a place where the the tourism is not dominated by you know americans europeans looking to look at the coliseum and it's friggin beautiful like it is un like the stuff that i saw like pictures will never do it justice Correct. the it rolling hills the the beautiful manicured clouds vineyards, coming over yeah. the national parks the clean adriatic sea yes our, uh, our hotel right over the sea I actually kept my um, my my door uh, to the. I don't. I, uh, now, granted, I, I I did wake up with a few more bug bites, but it was kind of worth it. Um, I left the door to my balcony open just to hear the sea. 
uh, rolling in, which was really lovely. And we had one of those harvest moons one night. Wait, let's take a quick moment. What hotel was it you stayed at? I stayed at Hermitage or something like that. So it was a really lovely hotel. Um, and, and I was on the seventh or yeah, I was on the eighth floor, but, um, but you could really hear the sea rolling in. So it was, it was really uh, a wonderful spot. And, and, and the other part about Abruzzo is, and I remember this talking to you, um, again, for our, our, for your Burgundy podcast, you said that, you know, some of these guys, um, uh, we're like farmers or one of these guys was like total farmer. And that's, yeah, that's really what Abruzzo is about. These guys are, it's, it's rustic farmers. It's not about the polish of Tuscany. It's about the rustic farmer of Abruzzo. Um, And it's just a, you know, a swath of land between the sea and those mountain areas that, uh, that can grow those grapes. But what I really want to get into is the Cerasuolo. And I find that the rosé from this area is so interesting. And I have a fear listening to a number of, uh, of people talk about it that they are going to somehow kill it. Interesting. Well, because, I mean, we're talking about rosé that is made to cellar. Well, some of it's made to cellar. I, I oh, a lot, a lot of, of it's made to cellar. I, I found a lot of it was very fresh and fruity, um, but now there's ta- there, there's some talk about making the color mandatory. No, right? no, no, because no, no, no. That yeah. is that is like some of the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. It was you know the dark. So it's called cherosuolo because you know the color is cherry for the most part, and it's yeah. got a lot of cherry flavor to it. Based on the Montepulciano uh, grape, but what I they're they're saying that some of the, you know the the ones that look more provincial in color should not be allowed because uh, you know that's not the identity of the region and it breaks my heart to think that you know they're going so to we're gonna start- we're gonna let wine bureaucrats uh, like handcuff the hands of winemakers Correct. looking to to do what they want to do like Correct. so if you want to make a because they want they, they want to differentiate themselves from provence which is fine and i think it does based on the grape alone or the fact that it says italy on the bottle it's number two but what they're trying to say is that it's got to be that that darker red color it can't be that you know light salmon it can't be that really light pink and that to me is just it's it's a killer because look some of those deep deeper red i don't want to say red but they are they are a cherry juice color you know are delicious they uh some of them can age some of them cannot some of them you know we didn't taste a lot of older uh uh suolo uh we we tasted mostly young um but some of the lighter ones were were delicious as well as some of the darker ones were delicious. It it didn't matter. It's just it's it's all about the winemaking. So I really hope that that fails. Uh, and that yeah, I mean, I mean, so a certain uh, a certain hue of red or a certain hue of pink doesn't count anymore, and you can't put Cherosuelo. Yeah, on j- it. just wait until you get like a really difficult wet vintage where you don't have a lot of concentration, and which is what they're get, dealing with now, right? So, like, what you're gonna just not let winemakers make Cherosuelo in a year like that? Like, that's ridiculous. And it's also like 
it's a thing I've learned, um, you know, as as a company that stakes its reputation on rosé. You've seen when pigs fly. I don't think the color's ever been the same twice. I know you've had vintages you've liked more than others, but I think we're getting a fairly consistent level of quality based on vintage. But, like, I don't think you've ever commented on the color. I don't think any critic or restaurant that I've sold to have ever commented on the color. And it's one of the best parts about rosé in Ontario is you get everything from, you know... I think it's the best part the, of rosé from anywhere. 100%. Because the color doesn't really mean anything except the amount of time the juice is spent on the skins. And the, the amount of time the juice spent on the skins should be at the discretion of the winemaker, and you should let them make the best expression of the wines possible according to them, not according to some bureaucrat who says, oh, it must be. It this must be color. the proper hue. It must be Pantone... Four eight five, like that. Just it, it it infuriates me. Where like you know, you and I are rightfully critical of the VQA, and when I hear about regions putting more rules in place, it's just like the, these rules: DOC, IGP, and DOCG VQA. Like they should be designations of origin. And yeah, I understand you want certain standards for viticultural practices, and you want certain standards for uh, regional protection. But it's just like. Don't let friggin' bureaucrats tell you how to make wine. That's dumb. Yeah, it's 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 something that that broke my heart, and there were so many people that were behind it as as critics uh, in Italy, and I was like, why? Why would you allow them to do that? Um, as somebody who's tasted over two hundred and fifty rosés so far uh, this year, especially and- especially in a region that is like. Like, let's face it. If we're talking about Italy, Abruzzo is like what the second or third line. If we're using my hockey analogies, like Abruzzo is not your starting lineup. No, like Abruzzo is a region that still like needs needs some time for the market recognition. And it's just like, okay, I get it. If you're looking for consistency to let the the market recognize it, but it's just like, I don't know. Let the market decide what your consistent thing is and let people follow. I mean, that's that's what's happened with with orange wine. Like, the market has decided. You and I, not a fan, which is fine. But the thing is, the market has decided that they like this, so let winemakers follow the trend if they want to. Have they? Well, I mean, it's starting to snap back. Has the market really said, yes, orange wine is what we've been missing in our lives? I don't really think it is. I've heard that in our neighboring province of Quebec, there are skids of unsold orange wine sitting in warehouses because it's not selling anymore. Correct. I think it's... I think it's... Anyway... Um, and you also were talking, did you get a chance to taste, uh, much, uh, older, um, uh, multiple channel or I did or? not, you did, not. I did not. Cause it was like in, in Anteprima and it was a lot of visits to larger wineries. So it was a lot of young, fresh tannic. Like, like you said, you talk about, I, I hate using the word disappointment because I'm always grateful and gracious when I have an opportunity to travel, to, to, to talk about wine and to learn about wine and, like I said, I have a lot of great things to say about Abruzzo, and I think I've talked nonstop about Villa Mania when I came back. But, um, sir, I just want to make sure I'm digging myself out of the hole because I would love to go back <laughs> to to try to build on the knowledge and see if there was something I didn't understand. But like, no. To the short answer to your question that you just asked, I did not get to taste a lot of. Uh, we were at, uh, um, and 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 I, I, you know what? One of the things that I learned while I was in Italy, I finally clued in to the to the letter C, which is very strange. So, 
let me try to explain this to you. If a word has a C in it, it is pronounced with a CH, as in Masciarelli. But if it has a CH in it, it is pronounced like a K. Are you catching my drift yet? Okay. It is still confusing to me. When I look at some of these words that I just want to call Mascarelli, and it's Mascarelli. But if it's got a K, a C, an, an a, a C, H, then you pronounce it as a K. And look, I have um, uh, my Italian friends say English is a tough language. I don't know. When you're putting a CH together and it's a K, and the C is a CH, I still go... Uh, that's still confusing as well. But anyway, uh, we were at Mascherelli and they um, they poured us some of their old uh, Montepulciano di Giano d'Abruzzo and I am just looking for the picture right here. What vintage? But I think it was the 07 that, okay. that got everybody really excited. Um, I know they poured, I think it was, uh, it could have been 06 and it's 07. It's like 15, 15 years. So that's, that's actually not too, too bad. Yeah, they poured us some older stuff. Uh, there was, I think, a ninety-nine. I don't seem to have. Um, it's not in my book here, and and my my glasses are in the car. So, <laughs> but I I remember taking pictures of the bottles. Uh, I think one was a ninety-nine, one was an 05, one was an 07. and I think it was that 05 that really hit that that lovely mark of of just a delicious. Bottle. Okay, okay, but but I think let's let's just add a, a tiny like clarifying note because I think most people listening to the podcast will know that you and I have different personal tastes in wine. I like that moment where the tannin falls off and the fruit's still vibrant. You like what I, what I call the baseball glove, but I know I know it may sound I don't per- mind a little shoe leather. The 99 yeah. was just it was good, but it was a little too leathery. And okay, I think, cool. I think we were all sitting at the table. There was a number of writers and um, and we we talked about it, but everybody kept saying about how that 05 was just the bomb.com. Like it was just right where it should have been. And um, Okay, okay, so I guess the question I asked though is the 05 is that like for you or for me or just one where it's kind of undisputably uh, I think because we all agreed that like we got back in the bus and everybody was talking and they're like, oh, this one was interesting. That was interesting. But everybody fell back to the 05. Everybody fell back to that was I the love wine. It. I love it when that happens. Like, that's the best part about the wine journalism. Like when we do that, it's just like everybody's got – like it's a subjective business, right? Mm. Like you, you and I agree often yep. and disagree once in a while. But like we just have these moments once in a while where like when there's an enthusiastic agreement in the room, like that's a good feeling. That's where it just feels like where – you know, you don't have to worry about it. it's a bunch of quacks in a, in a, in a room. Like when there's a certain consensus that arrives. You yeah, know? when the consensus arrives, like as I, I think I've mentioned to you a number of times, good wine stands out, bad wine stands out. It's that mushy middle where we all, you know, surprisingly fight over the stupidest things in the wine world. Is it a ninety-five? Is it a ninety-two? Is it a ninety? Um, but the really good stuff stands out and we can all agree when it's really good and it seems like we all agree when it's really piss poor mm-hmm. it's that you know stuff in the middle that gets us gets us talking and you know there was a lot of talk on this trip about natural wine that was another big issue um and it's i, I it's, love the conversations that are being had around 
natural wine. I think that's something we could, you and I could probably dive into into a whole other podcast. But it's like there is no definition correct of it, and it, that's it, what a lot of the, the discussion was. What it's is a marketing term? Wine? It's a marketing what term. Does, what does it, what does it mean? You know, some people take it as you know biodynamic. Some people take it as organic. Um, you know, put it this way: wine is a natural product to begin with. But it it's also, be. but it's also not like, correct. Wine doesn't exist without the intervention of man. Correct. Um, yes, you can you can allow grapes to fall on the ground; they will ferment naturally, and the squirrels get drunk. Cool. Let's drink but, that. But man does have its have his place, and there is a place for stepping back, and there is a place for for intervening. Um, but in the end, unless it is a confected product like Apothic Red. Uh, or any of your other wines that you love to, you know, crap on. Um, for the most part, yellowtail. The wines that we drink are like the we had a leaning post earlier. That's a natural wine. They don't manipulate it too much. I'm sure. Yeah, but but this but this is the point. Does but, a little bit. But this is the point where where you need to talk about like the the zealot tree part of it, right? Because depending on who you talk to, I guess it's it's uh, uh, it, it's kind of like I guess different degrees of veganism. How far do you draw the line? Right? Correct. Do you, are you fish? Are you you know you're not fish? Are you? Are you oh white, no, if you're vegan, you're not doing that. But it's like the whole concept of like honey oh, and things like that. Look, I'm, and, I'm I'm really getting tired of uh, and and maybe we should cut ourselves off after we talk this one. But you know, I'm getting tired of being on these trips. Where people say I'm vegetarian, and they they make them a meal, you know, which is all all veggies, and then they look at your piece of, and they look at your piece of pork or your piece of chicken, and go, oh, I'd eat that, or somebody goes, wow, this beef is fantastic, and somebody goes, oh, I'll give that a try, and it's like, how vegetarian are you when you're willing to try the beef, you're willing to try the chicken? I well, get it. Some of them are fish. But, you know, as you said, there's a various levels of vegetarian, vegan, and it's just, it's unbelievable how much I see on these drinks. Oh, it's, okay, but the thing, like, going back to natural wine, though, is it's how much of this is jumping onto a marketing bandwagon versus, like, sustainability. Because I know from visiting vineyards in Beaujolais in particular, you know, no farmer wants to spray in there vineyards sprays cost money correct um they know sprays aren't good for them but you know most importantly like if you have an old vineyard especially when your vines are over 15 years old and the plants naturally start to crop back you want to take care of them to make sure they come back year after year so like the zealotry that comes with certain types of agriculture is um it's fascinating, and I'm not going to say this in any definitive terms, but it's just like talking to a lot of farmers in Niagara, for example. You know, I'm not sure that organic or biodynamic are the right solutions for our climate in Niagara, and it's just because when you subscribe and, and look to get the certifications to be organic or biodynamic, you're subscribing to follow a specific set of rules. And I think there are some really great farmers in Niagara in particular that make outstanding fruit, they grow outstanding fruit, so they don't make the fruit, the fruit grows, that grow outstanding fruit that are forced to 
deal with what Mother Nature deals them. And I think that's what that's, good grape growers do. And that's what where sustainability, I think, comes in. And yeah. that's what a lot of winemakers talk about and should be talking about. And look, the the only reason, not the only reason, but the main reason that you're spraying anything that is harmful, let's say, should be if you're going to lose that crop. Like if, if your livelihood is suddenly, you know, if your if your workers are going to be out, and, and and one of the one of the wine wineries that I spoke to, one of the winemakers I spoke to, said, "Look, it's not just the fruit out there, but it's everything that goes around it. The yep. workers inside the winery, outside the winery, the winemakers, you know, ev- everything that goes around. You, you think about, you know, the fruit." You think about the winery, you think about the winemaker, but you don't think of all the other things and people that are around that. Yes, there's a winemaker at the center who takes all the accolades, but there's so many other people yep. that are part of that winery. And if all of them are going to lose their livelihood because you don't get a crop, you know, the, well, how, the how thought we- is you, you, you better spray to save everybody's job. How about we get to just the front line as well? Like, especially when you're dealing with small operated wineries like nobody's in this business to get rich and you know if a winemaker that you trust is willing to stand behind the product i think that also says a lot correct i would agree with that all right so what's your what's your big takeaway from abruzzo like you 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 tasted the cherisuolo how many of these wines are going to make in into the rosé report being released july 7th there there's probably going to be at least Two dozen, if not more. How many did you taste? I tasted every one that was in the room. That wasn't the question I asked you. How many did you taste? Uh, there were... Somebody said there was a hundred or so producers in that room. Wow. Okay. So you maybe, you are talking about the top 25%. So there's maybe, maybe less, maybe 80 to 100 producers in that room. Anyway, I'd have to look it up. But um, you have I a know, notepad in front of you. What the hell, man? But I didn't. But there's a there's the Cartavini, which was the booklet that had all the wines that were in it, and um, I didn't bring that with because really it wouldn't have told me much except what the producers were. But there was a lot of producers there. There's going to be a lot of Cherasuelo, uh, Cherasuelo. Oh my God! You See? you did that to yourself. Yeah are going to be in there. Uh, I'm going to have some commentary about Gerasuolo as well. So, uh, and then I have I have a video about one of the really good Gerasuolo that I tasted. Do you want to well. tease the producer? Who is the producer? And is it, and that is was it, one of the Masciarelli wines. It was really a lovely wine. Available in Ontario? It is not. So why are you teasing us like that? Because, you know what? I realize that some of us get out there and travel. And when you're out traveling through the U.S., because it's available there, when it when you're in maybe Italy, um, the international series of my videos do not have to be available in Ontario. They just have to be really great wines that I've tasted. And, and it's up to, you know, not just people of Ontario, but people around the world find these wines and and they are just because we have a really shitty system doesn't mean that we have to suffer if we travel 
Okay. Whatever you say, dude. <laughs> we we really do get the short end of the stick here in Ontario. The LCBO really does suck. I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can find me as the grape guy, as thegrapeguy.ca. You can find me there on Instagram. You can find me there on Twitter as the grape guy. I'm going to turn it over to my podcast partner to see what he has to say. I'm Andre Pru of AndreWineReview.ca. Follow me on social media at AndreWineReview. And as always, Patreon.com slash Two Guys Talking Wine. It doesn't take a lot of money to keep the podcast going. We appreciate our supporters, all seven of them. You think that for the number of people who listen to this podcast, we'd have a couple more. Come on, you're sitting there listening. Like $2 a month, that helps us pay for our hosting we use SoundCloud. It's not cheap. We just renewed it. It's expensive for the year. And Andre has his new deck of cards. Yeah, I have my new deck of cards, but like that was for others. Anyways, uh, take us away, Michael. You know what? Um, I'm going to say it, Andre. I really like this, uh, this Louis Moreau Chablis. It was a lovely little Chablis made from that Chardonnay grape. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.